you want to take out your Bibles, we are in the Gospel of Mark, uh, still in chapter 1, just flying through. So chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, as you're turning there, I have a fun announcement to make. Uh, Your youth pastor, Mark Holmes, completed, after five and a half years of work, his master's degree this last week. Uh, Yeah. And I think the best thing we can all do is to find him after the service and give him a hug, everybody, because Mark really likes a hug and peanut butter. So those are two things you could do to really prop him up. Uh, I am very proud of him. It's a hard thing to do. It's hard to do via distance. And he has not just gone for um, some of the lower level training. He's uh, challenged himself and risen to the challenge. So be proud of him and uh, tell him so with a good good hug. So... (laughs) Let's pray, and uh, we'll dive into our passage here. Father, uh, we thank you again that we can be together this morning as a church family, declaring praise to you, but also declaring to one another the praises that your collective church has, the vertical and the horizontal dimension of our worship. You are the subject of our worship, but it is a privilege to do so as family of God. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that it would comfort those who need comfort, that it would instruct those who need instruction, that it would convict those who need to be convicted. God, I pray uh, that what is spoken this morning, what is proclaimed here, would not simply be my words. Lord, I pray that I would decrease, that your spirit would increase in the influence that we ought to have from this text. Uh, So, Lord, be our teacher, and let me just be a mouthpiece for your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite um, film series as of late uh, is Band of Brothers. Have you guys seen this one? Band of Brothers. I was a little bit embarrassed and sort of humbled, and some of you are already thinking this right now. Uh, I w- when I was writing my notes, uh, I wrote out in rec- a recent series, right? It's 20 years old. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of getting teased often, as I should, because I'm a teaser, but I'm getting teased often about how out of date my, my pop culture references are. So I, I'll try to work on that. But uh, this, this show, Band of Brothers, this series, uh, I found uh, really entertaining and instructive and thoughtful. And um, in this particular series, one of the subplots of it, of course, is a contrast between Uh, two men and two sort of leadership styles, if you will. Uh, We have these guys. Remember? Captain Sobel, uh, played by David Schwimmer here, if you know which one David is. He's the one on your right. And then Lieutenant Winters. And and one of the things that sort of gets gets put on display here is a picture of authority. Who has it and who doesn't have it? And if, sort of, if you remember how this sort of plays out, uh, Captain Sobel has a kind of authority, right? He's the commanding officer. He has rank or position. But he uses his position in really sort of arbitrary or even self-serving ways. He's a bit of a narcissist, and we see plenty of narcissistic leaders today. But he tends to wield power in a way that just kind of benefits him and demoralizes others, and eventually, he loses the respect of the troops, and he loses command of the company, 
And his authority is sort of exposed for the thinness that it was, right? In contrast to him, uh, we see that there's a different man within the company. And he eventually gains the respect of the men. He doesn't have it at first. They're a little suspect about him. But over time, they grow to trust him. They come to know his character. And they see that he has a real um, authority in his personhood by virtue of who he is. He demonstrates it in uh, battlefield skill, wise decision-making, genuine care for his troops, and he is sort of shown to have this real authority inherent in his personhood and who he is. And I think this sort of contrast of, of characters is really fascinating throughout the series. And it sort of shows us that there are, as we know, different kinds of authority. Uh, and, and I want you to, if you take your hand out and turn it over on the back uh, to sort of talk about this, I thought we would talk about it with some Latin because Latin makes everything clearer, right? <laughs> so let's do that. And we can kind of just identify a few different types of, of authority, if you will. The first, ex charismata descenso. We think of a charismatic figure, someone who kind of has authority by virtue of the largeness of their personality. And we see that one common. Ex officio de jour, not just a clothing brand, ex officio, but it means right, authority by virtue of one's office, like in this case, Captain Sobel. And the last one here is ex persona de auctoritas, which is more an authority by virtue of one's character and personhood, which was in this case demonstrated more by Lieutenant Winters. And what I want to kind of tease this out, the reason I want to do this is because I want to bring this question about authority and different types of authority with us into the text as we consider what kind of leader was Jesus and what kind of authority did he possess. So to put this in context of sort of why I'm doing that, last week we saw Jesus made some really big claims, right? Some very, very bold claims against Israel's eschatological hope. Remember, we sort of unpacked that big word, their, their hope of the end times, of the resolution and redemption of all things, the restoration that God is working into the world, the redemptive plan against their eschatological hopes of Messiah coming and establishing these things. Jesus has the boldness to declare the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. And then he has the boldness to command grown men to follow him. And he has the boldness to basically say, I'm going to change the mission of your life. You're now going to be fishers of men. That is a successive series of really, really bold, authoritative statements. And so today what we're going to see as this kind of passage develops, as Mark lays out his gospel here, I think what he wants us to see that these bold claims of Jesus are not just words spoken into the air, but that Jesus substantiates them with the kind of authority that he has. So we get this picture of his authority on display uh, again and again and again. It's not an authority just simply of office or of charisma, but by virtue of who he is, his very person. So kind of the big idea of what we want to take away today is this. Jesus substantiates his authority through his words, through his deeds, 
and maybe surprisingly, through prayer. So um, follow along with me, Mark 1, 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So what we see first of all here is that Jesus' authority is demonstrated. You know, he's not just feigning uh, in his instruction a kind of authority or power that he has. He substantiates it here. Uh, Let's kind of look at the scene. I want to just, I don't want to assume that you know the difference between temple and synagogue. So uh, temple, of course, this is located in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, surrounding areas about three times a year would come to the temple for offerings, for sacrifices, and in what we call pilgrimage uh, festivals. And these festivals are Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost. And so that's kind of the life of, of the temple for Israel. Uh, but then we have the synagogue, and a synagogue is different than the temple in that it's more like your local church. Uh, this is where you come together for worship, to receive instruction, to care for one another, uh, these kinds of things. And so the question I want you to think about, because we want to consider this scene here, this is, where, where, are, where are Jesus and his disciples here when they go to synagogue? What's the text say? Capernaum, right. Where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. So what I want to show you is this isn't Jesus' home church. He, he's a, a visitor, if you can call Jesus a visitor in the church. I don't, you know, theologically, that's sort of an interesting one to think about. But this isn't his home church here. Uh, so just take notice of that. Capernaum is about 30 miles away from Nazareth where he grew up. So Jesus, as a guest, if you will, not in his home church, is given an opportunity to teach. And when he does so... They're amazed at the authority that he has. And for me, this generates all kinds of questions. In what way was it authoritative? How did it differ from the teachers of the law that they were accustomed to? Why did his teaching stand out as it did? So here's some of my thoughts. Uh, did he know more? Probably. Did he say it more clearly or with, with greater conviction? Did he carry himself with a different kind of poise and confidence? You know, is it the beard? Is that what gives him the authority here? Uh, and I would say the answer is D, all of the above. You do get a little authority with a beard. So sorry, Air Force guys. When you retire, you can grow it like they all do. But <laughs> Authority, as we've kind of already laid out here, is, is it's kind of a funny thing in that it's hard to define. It's one of those things where you may not always know the ingredients of it, but you know it when you see it, right? Uh, it's a combination maybe of skill and knowledge and care and wisdom, uh, integrity, humility. Uh, but there are intangibles about authority. 
whatever you want to call it, ethos or gravitas or street cred, right? We, we know it when we see it. We could do a survey and say, listen, um, church, who in this, inside this church has a natural authority? Not by virtue of their, their position or anything like that, but who has a natural authority? And you would all identify some of the same people. We, we tend to know it when we see it. Uh, even animals can sense authority, right? Kids can give the dog a command. They can say, dog, sit. And the dog's like, okay, or not, you know, kind of do it reluctantly, the slow sit that a dog will do. But mom and dad can walk in the room and say, dog, sit. And it's, boom, it happens. Even an animal senses authority. Um, cats, of course, are worthless in this whole exercise. <laughs> they don't obey any commands, Right? They don't obey any commands. Uh, some, yeah, I hear someone saying that's not true. I, I'll do a survey this, this service as well. How, how many of you ever have seen a cat be given a command and it obeys? Okay, these are the liars in the room. Take, no, <laughs> take note of them right there. You give a cat a command. I'm sorry. And typically what they get is, please. You can tell a cat to sit. And the expression on its face seems to say something like, that's not how this relationship works. I don't take orders from you. You work for me. Why don't you have a seat? I'll climb on your face, right? That's cats. All right, back to Jesus here. (laughs) Jesus is one with authority. When he gives orders, everyone And everything obeys. He is authoritative. And in the next few chapters of Mark's gospel, we just see a variety of examples of sort of spheres where his authority is demonstrated in one sphere after another. It's almost a systematic showing of all of the areas over which Christ is an authority. And in this instance, it seems that what's being put on display is that Jesus has authority in the church among the people of God. He is over the church. The church works for him, so to speak. It's his creation focused upon him, entered into by him, and he is building his church. So Jesus is an authority over the church. When he taught, he was confident. When Jesus taught, he was accurate. When Jesus taught, people were confronted with both the written and the living word of God simultaneously. Imagine that. He is both the speaker and the message. And I think there's something in that dynamic of the authority that was recognized. Jesus is the head of the church. And then secondly, we see here another sphere. We see that he has authority over demons. So this morning, we're going to do a little bit of demonology, if you will, Uh, Probably none of you got up this morning and thought, let's go to church. It's a beautiful day. I hope we have a little demonology. Uh, So last week we looked at some angelology uh, and just in the same way that angelology is sort of neglected in the church, so is is demonology. And maybe the most important thing for me to say right out of the gate is this, they're real. And they exist today. They're not some sort of mythical character just in the ancient text, they're real. They're not Halloween myth or folklore. 
I do think, however, there are two common errors in the church with regard to sort of demon and spiritual powers and, and forces. And I think the first is this, to deny it or to be dismissive of its reality. But the other mistake, almost as common, is to overemphasize it or to live in fear of it and to make too much of it. And we tend to kind of fall down on one side or the other here. What the scriptures teach about demons and about sort of these dark uh, spiritual forces, uh, demons are fallen angels. When, and we see this in Revelation, when Satan rebelled, uh, he took a third of the angels with him and they were cast out, hurled down. And they are enemies of Christ and of Christians. But what is important for us to remember is this. They are defeated enemies, already defeated, already lost, and they know it. They know it. As Christians who are inhabited by God, the Holy Spirit, they have no power in your life that you do not give to them. And I want to say that, I want to avoid that. I don't want to say that they're powerless, but I, don't, I want you to know that they have no authority in your life that you don't yield. They possess some, but I don't believe they can possess Christians. But I do think that Christians, even Christians, and this is a point of learning for me still, so give me some liberty here, please, and, and, and check me on this and, and tell me if I'm wrong. But I do think they can torment or oppress if we allow them. But we have the authority of Christ to say, no, you won't. And in Jesus' name, get out of my life. So I want you to know that authority that you have that is in Christ. Uh, look, look at um, just sort of their impotence in relationship to Christ here in this particular passage. Verse 23, the man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. They know they're beat. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with the shriek. I ask you this. Did the spirit want to do that? No. He was unable to do what he wanted to do. He had to do what Jesus wanted him to do. That is the authority that Jesus possesses. I think what Mark intends for us to see from this encounter is, is not just that Jesus has authority over demons, but I think he wants us to see all of the spheres of his authority. But the demon one is so interesting because of what they know. Now, I'll draw a distinction here. In everyday life, were you to have an encounter with the demonic, and I'll tell you this, after 20 years of serving at this church, I've only had one direct encounter with the demonic, and it was memorable. I'll just say that. And even more memorable than, than the demonic was the authority of Christ over that situation. And it's a good story, but I don't have time for it this morning. But the, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you can take me out for lunch later. I like Thai food. And <laughs> they know who he is. I'm not gonna trust the, the words of a demon in this age, I'm not going to believe what it says, but what the Bible preserves about these words, it holds out as truth. They know who he is, and they're afraid of him. 
In Matthew 2, 29, we see another sort of interaction between the demonic. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know what's coming. They know they're getting thrashed. Colossians 2.15 tells us that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Demons are like drowning victims who know they're going to die and are just looking to pull someone down with them. But what's important for us to see in this passage is Mark's purpose, his intent. He's trying to show that Jesus is not just captain of the Christians. He has authority to command all spiritual realms, all spiritual beings. He has an authority over all. Abraham Kuyper is a Dutch theologian, and he talks about the sovereignty and the power of God this way. He says, there is not a single square inch of the universe over which God does not proclaim mine. The demonic, the dark forces are not off limits. Even they do what they're told when God tells them. They know that he is the Holy One of God. They know that he is victorious. They already know that torment is coming to them and they know they're no match for him. So Christian, be aware of all of that. Verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. I think that I got to interject here. I'm kind of like, what are the guys doing? Like, this gal was just sick and healed. I don't know that, you know, maybe one of us could step up and help here, but nevertheless. Verse 32, that evening after sunset... The people uh, brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So what we see here, Jesus has authority also over sickness. So we've seen his authority exercised in spiritual realms in the church, and even in the demonic, and now we see it in sort of a physical realm, particularly over bodies. And so I'm going to expand this a little bit to say Jesus isn't just an authority when we're sick. He has command and authority over our bodies. He engineered our bodies. He fashioned our bodies. He redeemed our bodies. He instructs us how to live in our bodies. He modeled how to live in a body. He is able to heal our bodies. And he will one day raise our bodies and reconstitute them into glorified bodies, or as I like to call them, bodies to die for. I'm looking for, yeah, thanks. Someone got it back here. She got it. Body to die for. I don't have that yet, but one day. There's going to be a body that was worth dying for. And I think it's important for Christians to understand our faith doesn't just live in this abstract, ethereal realm. It exists in our bodily life. It's worth remembering that Jesus had a body and still has a body, a glorified body. We are enfleshed, embodied people, and our bodily life is to be under the authority of Christ as well. 
So Mark now, he's kind of, so he's focused kind of um, on showing Jesus' authority over every, every realm, right? The spiritual, both inside the church and in the demonic realm, over our bodies. And then he almost contrasts this huge picture of the authority of Christ with a picture of his submission and his dependence. And you, you almost look at it and think, does this passage belong here or maybe elsewhere? And I think Mark puts it right here on purpose to sort of contrast, to show his authority, but also to show us that Jesus does not use his authority independently or selfishly, but he is always working in concert with and for the glory of the triune God. Um, Probably one of the more important uh, things that I've read in the last five years from my spiritual life, uh, there's a book, uh, I put it in your notes, called um, Delighting in the Trinity by uh, Michael Reeves, I think was his name. And he had a quote in there from Karl Barth. And I appreciate it so much because it has helped me to see how wonderful it is that God is triune and not a monad, if I could, to borrow his phrase. Karl Barth said this, the triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. And that was so helpful to think about that, that God has existed in eternity past in a triune fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying love and fellowship and communion and delighting in the care and affection and deference to one another. And in that beautiful unity, triunity, he decides to share or to create, to let others experience this wonderful dynamic. And so he makes us. And then all three members are involved in our redemption is where. It is, it is the triunity of God that is beautiful rather than just a singular monad who is selfish and self-centered, which would make God, in a sense, ugly. Now, you might think, what? That's new thought. Uh, I encourage you to read that book. It was really helpful for me. Here's another way that he says it. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty of the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off of God, we would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing him of precisely what is so delightful about him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that he is so good and so desirable. For the Christian, the Trinity should not be this embarrassing bit of theology that we have difficulty explaining but a source of pride for us, knowing the nature of our God. And here, Jesus interacts with the Father in a way that puts this on display for us. In other words, even though Jesus has authority, as we've seen displayed, he also carries this authority in submission to the Father, so to speak. He maintains a dependence upon him. Verse 35 Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I'm going to pause here. This is one of those passages 
that is on Facebook memes and t-shirts and pillows and coffee mugs. It's embroidered. It's spoken of often. It's the source of I don't know how many women's retreats. Uh, you know, this is one of those subjects, and it's one of those subjects that we can miss the significance of it because of the familiarity of it. Jesus prayed. God the Son separated from the busyness of life and engaged the Father in a dynamic of prayer and intimacy. And I would just stop here and, and, and say, if Jesus maintains a life of prayer and a dynamic of dependence upon the Father, how much more so do you and I need to do that? We'll continue on with the passage. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This passage is particularly convicting um, for me. Um, if it were talking about me, let's say it this way. This is why it's convicting, because here's how it would sound. Very early in the morning, when Eric couldn't sleep anymore, which is common, while it was still dark, because it's Alaska, <laughs> Eric got up and left the house and just went to work. He tried to solve his problems by getting there earlier and doing more. And later on that day, he thought he might stop and pray. That, that's how I, I read this, and that's the way it contrasts with my life. I am too late in coming to prayer. Can you relate to that, Christian? I am too late in coming to prayer, which is silly. When the triune God is available when God the Son and God the Spirit are both simultaneously advocating for me to the Father presently and I can't even turn my heart and mind to him or I would even start my day without taking time and drawing near. The source of pride and hubris for humans, man, that is the eternal sin for us, isn't it? But Jesus maintained also the father's purpose. Um, he didn't just go rogue. He's not just a free agent. He's not just doing a Jesus thing. He's doing a triune God thing. So let me bring this to a close here. Why do we care about this subject? What would the Christian faith lack if we didn't have this content or if we did not have Mark's sort of expose of the authority of Christ in all of these different realms? And I think the point we have to come to recognize is this. Jesus made some bold claims, as we saw last week. Does he have the authority to make those claims? And the answer is a resounding yes. He has the right to announce that the time has come. He has the right to announce that the kingdom of God is near. He has the right to command us to repent of our sin and to believe. He has the right to call us to follow him. And he has the right to commission us to become fishers of men. Why? Because he is authoritative in every realm of life. And it's put on display for us here. 
The last thing I want to ask you is this. While Jesus' authority is demonstrated far and wide in this passage as we continue on in Mark, are you presently yielding to his authority? There's a little booklet that I've noted in your handout. It's the shortest book I think I'll ever recommend to you. It's about six pages long. So you, even you, can do this. It's called Robert, or it's called My Heart, uh, I'm forgetting the title, My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger, which is a funny name, but, and it's a brilliant little book. It calls us to imagine our, our hearts like a home with closets and kitchen and living room and bedrooms and a garage and sort of all these different rooms and then asks the question, are you giving the Lord access? Are you yielding to him in every room in your life? Or do you have some signs up, some locked doors or signs like no trespassing, private property, closed, Is there a room in your life that you have not yielded to Christ? And I want to put that front and center for you this morning. And I want you to think on that and to pray on that as I pray for all of us in closing. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we're thankful for your obedience. And spirit, we're thankful that you impart to us regeneration and newness of life. We see the authority of Christ on display here. We recognize it. And yet, Lord, I believe probably each one in this room can recognize an area of their life where they have not yet yielded to the authority of Christ. Still doing something their own way. Still persisting in some besetting sin. Still holding on to a fear or an insecurity still rebellious in one area. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would precisely show us what that is and to help us to yield it to Jesus. For he is an authority everywhere and we want to submit to him. Thank you for your word, which is both timeless and timely and enduring. We pray in Christ's name, amen.